Hey, brother, there's an endless road to rediscover. Hey, sister, know the water's sweet, but blood is thicker. Oh, the sky. Welcome to the Reformed Brotherhood. Brothers don't shake hands. Brothers gotta hug. I'm Tony. And I'm Jesse. Brother? I'm going to have a brother? I've always dreamed about having a brother. If you'd like to join our brotherhood, you can join our Facebook group. You can email us at reformbrotherhood at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at reformbrohood. You can also subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Hey, brother-in-law. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. What's going on, Tony? Not much, not much. Just enjoying a nice, relaxed Sunday evening. How about yourself? So I have a confession. You have a confession, okay. This is an important confession. It's weighing heavy on my heart. So my wife and I last evening had this great opportunity to get together with some friends, some wonderful reformed people, and we played a game. All right. And it was a board game. Oh, no. And I have to confess to you, it was... The Joel Olstein Your Best Life Now board game. Oh my goodness. Please tell me you're bringing that up here when you come for Christmas. <laughs> and I was horrible. Like aside from the really poor theology, of course, I don't even know if you can call it theology because it was just so downright awful. Yeah. Not only that, but the gameplay, like aside from the fact that it's straight up like idolatrous prosperity gospel, like it's incredible how thorough that is throughout the game. Not only that, but if you set that aside, which is a lot, uh, granted, the gameplay itself was horrid. Like it, it, most of the game didn't make sense. That it even comes with like a little tiny mirror, so that you can look at yourself and at one point in the game say promising and affirming things to yourself about yourself. Wow, it, it's incredible. So we had a really fun time because we definitely had a great opportunity to redeem it in some ways by speaking the truth to each other. But it is a horrid game, like in every conceivable sense. It's ironic, I guess, that this game that's all about prosperity gospel uh, was really, really awful to play in its own right. And disappointingly, I didn't win any treasure. I just checked and my cars that are sitting in the driveway are still like the old, like no BMWs, nothing like that. My teeth aren't any wider and I don't have any more money. So whatever. Wow. So I have two thoughts. First of all, I think it's absolutely perfect that a Joel Olstein game, one, doesn't make any sense, and two, isn't any fun. That seems like it fits perfect with Joel Olstein. And secondly, I feel like the, the rule should be the first person to claim that they've won actually wins the game. Yeah, that actually would make more sense. Like there, yeah. was, a, there was a winner, but it was even confusing at the end what you win because you actually write down like, uh, like a, an immediate goal. Which we just like made like super idolatrous things. So we definitely didn't like play this game for real. But um, I was curious. Like I wanted to give it. I wanted to put myself into it like as much weight as I could. I mean really we're, we're here to help everybody. So I figured I'll, I'll take one for the team. Wow. I haven't read that book, Your Best Life Now. But I've got a pretty decent idea of how like just downright confusing and awful the whole thing is. So there even like there's even you get a certain number of like I think it's like two like faith cards. And these cards are to play if for some reason you do not want to or you can't complete a challenge in the game. 
And like even the faith cards, like these have faith cards, are just Joel Olstein quotes. Wow. Yeah, there, there's no scripture in this bad boy whatsoever. But it, it was absolutely hilarious because the company was fantastic in which, which we played it with. And so we had a really good time. But there's nothing like sitting in a group of people holding up a tiny mirror and the card <laughs> challenging you to say like affirmative things about what you like on your face. So, so did you purchase this game or did these, these friends of yours? No, these friends of ours purchased it, but it was because we had talked about it. And um, I was actually really tempted to myself just to see what this thing was like, because it was only $10. So I feel like this was like a decent investment in one, taking that off the market from somebody else who might actually try to play that seriously. Yeah. Uh, And also because it was just a good time. So I used to have a Joel Osteen game that I would play. Um, I would, I used to like get my oil changed and my tires changed and stuff at the local Walmart. We had a Walmart that had like a auto center in it. And so when I was waiting for my car, uh, I would walk over to like the book section and the game I would play is I would pick up a Joel Olstein book and I would randomly flip to a page, uh, and I would randomly flip to pages until I found something heretical. And I think like the record of how many flips that I got to before I found something heretical was like four or five. So it was a pretty, pretty quick bounce to heresy. That's outstanding. You would love this game then because it's just straight up like out of the gate, straight idolatry. It is like name it and claim it. So you're right. It is totally ironic that you actually have to win this game by achieving something when really you shouldn't have to achieve anything. You just... right. Name it and it's yours. So speaking of heresy, we're uh, talking about the Trinity tonight, right? <laughs> yes, we are. Heresy so, abounds. Uh, this is your spoiler alert. Jesse and I are probably going to say something on accident tonight that is heresy because that's what happens when you talk about the Trinity. That's very true. So spoiler alert. So the the doctrine of the Trinity, this is, uh, this is entry two of our systematic theology episodes. Uh, we're doing systematic theology at the first uh, recording of the month, which may or may not be the first uh, Wednesday of the month when it releases with the first recording. So um, the Trinity is is a doctrine that is absolutely at the center of Christian faith, right? But it's also a doctrine that like 95% of Christians have no real comprehension of. Would you, you think that's a fair, fairly accurate number? Yeah, absolutely. Because I think a lot of times we get bogged down in the sense that it's mysterious. So therefore, we don't spend a whole lot of time really involving ourselves in trying to understand what we can or, or making clarification about things. Right. So the, the, the general kind of perspective that Christians that I run into at least have is there's some sort of vague awareness of threeness and there's some sort of vague awareness of oneness and exactly how that threeness and oneness works uh, and interplays with each other. That's where people kind of get confused. So um, we're going to try to talk. um, You know, this is a huge topic and we are not a super long show and we don't want this to be a super long show. So we're going to do kind of the big picture flyover of the Doctrine of the Trinity. And then we're going to try to come in for a uh, landing on some real practical kinds of things that you can take away after listening to this and will really help with your devotions to the, the persons of the Trinity that we serve and love and worship. Right on. I'm stoked. Let's do it. So let's let's put you on the hot hot seat. And we didn't plan this. Jesse doesn't know I'm going to do this. Why don't you give me a definition of the Trinity? This is already way better than the Joel Osteen game. 
This should be another. This. this should be another game that we play. Is is um, orthodoxy or heresy, and we'll have like the Trinitarian <laughs> analogy edition. <laughs> Uh, so many games that you and I need to create. Yes. So, so hit me with a definition. So when I think of uh, the Trinity, of course, the first thing that comes to my mind is like the portmanteau, if you will, of those two words, try unity. So we are in some respects speaking of three in oneness. And for me, it's always been honestly simplest definition. God is one essence in three persons. Sure. So that is the best short definition that we can give. Now, even that, and what you'll see when you study the Trinity is no matter what you say and no matter how you phrase it, you're going to be sliding off of the rails one direction or another. Exactly. So talking about the Trinity is this constant um, tightrope walk of trying to talk about the threeness of God and trying to talk about the oneness of God and to hold those two realities in tension. And Calvin uh, in Institutes, I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but he says that he was reading a passage in Gregory of Nazianzus, who was one of the the Cappadocian fathers. We're not going to get into the history, but um, the Cappadocian fathers were were bishops in what's now modern day Turkey, was called Cappadocia. um, And they did a lot of work in the uh, fourth century uh, on the Trinity. And he has this passage where he says, no sooner do I think about the one than my mind goes to the three. And no sooner do I go to the three than my mind returns to the one. And that's really the balance that we need to strike as we talk about the Trinity is we need to always be, um, we're never going to be able to land in sort of the sweet spot. And that's not because the sweet spot doesn't exist, but it's because we are limited creatures with no experience, no direct experience with um, an three person sharing a single nature or a single nature that is um, is is personalized in three persons. Um, everything that we see, and we'll get into what these terms mean, but everything that we see and everything we experience is one nature, one person. Um, and that, that correlation is absolute in creation. Um, but now we look at God and God is radically different, which we shouldn't be surprised, right? That God is radically different than creation. So um, the the discussion of the Trinity gets really technical. So I'm going to try to stay sort of on the edges of that technical field. But we have to understand some technical terms first. And this, if we can stick with these terms um, and know what these terms mean, use them in their proper way, and understand how they relate to each other, it goes a tremendous uh, tremendous distance towards keeping us kind of on that middle path of, of, of orthodoxy. So the the first term that we have to understand is the Greek word usia. Now, the Greek word, I'm going to try to stick with the Greek terms because when we translate into English, we get all sorts of weird stuff going on. So the Greek word usia kind of refers to that fundamental underlying substance or underlying thing or underlying um, sort of the metaphysical reality that makes a thing what it is. So I have a human nature. And that human nature makes me human. And Jesse has the same kind of nature. It's a different, it's a separate nature, but it's the same kind of nature. And that also makes him human. And so the things that we share in common, um, we share in common because of our human nature. And that's what the Greek word usia means. Um, um, Sorry, I have a cold, so we're going to be lots of sniffling tonight. We can't avoid it. Um, The... The Greek word that now represents kind of the threeness of God is the Greek word hypostasis. And that word um, refers to kind of individual 
instances of a given nature. So I'm an I'm a hypothesis. Jesse's a hypothesis. Um, my wife in the other room is a hypothesis. And we have to be careful because this gets translated and understood as person in kind of modern terminology. And when we think of a person, we're thinking of something that's rational. We're thinking of a human person that has intellect and will and emotions and those kinds of things. But in the original kind of philosophical use of these terms, a, a hypostasis is not necessarily rational. So I have a lamp on a desk next to me, and there's a certain kind of nature to a lamp, right? There's certain attributes that a lamp has in order to be a lamp. Now, this lamp is a hypostasis of the lamp usia. Now, I know that that's a weird thing to think about, but in the way that these terms are used in the original um, the original philosophy and theology of, of the Trinity is a rock, a horse, a lamp, all these things are hypothesis. The sort of um, the, the mental features, the rational features, those are important in discussing the Trinity, but they're not um, they're not unique to a person. Um, they're they come from the nature. And so we'll see that that interplays in a sort of a, an interesting way later. Does that make sense so far? Are you tracking with me? Yeah, I'm with you. That makes sense. I mean, in some ways, we're just making sure it's helpful to ha throw these terms out there because uh, one, you may come across them. And two, all we're trying to do is essentially catalog, create some type of hierarchy, almost like genus species in a really rough way, trying to understand and break down catalogically uh, how all these work. Yeah, absolutely. And so those those two terms, um, roughly speaking, the usia is the way that God is one. The way that the divine nature is unified is called an usia. The way that the persons are united to each other, the way that they are not representing three gods but are still one god, that's the usia. That's how we're still monotheists instead of tritheists, is that the Father, Son, and Spirit share a single, simple usia. And we talked about simplicity in our last podcast, but basically an indivisible usia. Um now, the way that we talk about God and we talk about the threeness of God, that's what we mean when we say hypothesis. So the way that the persons are distinguished from each other, the way that we talk about the diversity that exists within God. Now, we're talking about diversity, not division, not dis um, distinction, not separation. Those things are really important. Um, and then there's a final term that, that we have to remember, and it's called perichoresis. And what perichoresis essentially is, is perichoresis is how we understand and maintain that the the single divine nature is not divided amongst the persons. Um, that, that that single indivisible nature remains a single nature instead of being sort of subdivided into three natures. And Calvin um, actually puts it really kind of beautifully when he explains this. Um, it's in uh, Institutes um, Book 1, is that chapter 13, um, section 19. And it says, in each hypothesis, the whole nature is understood. The only difference being that each has his own peculiar subsistence. The whole father is in the son and the whole son is in the father. As the son himself also declares, I am in the father and the father is in me. So what, what Calvin is getting at, and this is sort of previewing some of the questions that came up when we when we kind of sneak peeked this episode in different Facebook groups, is a lot of people will look at the Trinity and they'll sort of think, uh, they'll think in terms of like a Venn diagram, right? You've got three circles 
and you know one's labeled father one's labeled son one's labeled spirit and where they overlap in the middle that's kind of where people envision the divine nature is where the persons overlap and that is fundamentally the wrong way to think about it so um when we talk about the whole father being in the son and the whole son in the father basically what that's saying is that the overlap is the whole divine nature so the father doesn't just have the divine nature. The father is the divine nature. And the son doesn't just have the divine nature. The son is the divine nature. And likewise, the spirit. And so when we talk about the father being the divine nature, the son is also divine nature. And so there's no, there's nothing outside of um, the father that the son possesses. Right? It's not like there's some attribute or some feature that the son has that the father is not. There's not some um, property that the son or the spirit has that the father and son aren't. Um, and when we have that Venn diagram, it leads us in the wrong direction. So this perichoresis, um, the word, if you break the word down into component parts, it's kind of this dancing around each other. But from a technical language perspective, it's more the interpenetration of the persons. The person's kind of... Um, they interpenetrate each other. They're in each other. They're they're not separable. You can't see a distinction, um, and that's really important for us to maintain too. We need a sound effect for like when heresy is mentioned, like some some guy just yelling heresy. Yeah, there we go. Like a buzz. I'll get yeah. like a taboo buzzer from from that game. Yeah, exactly. I yeah, I totally agree. So if I were like to try to summarize it without the technical language, we're essentially trying to communicate that once again, there's that usia, which is just a fun word to say, honestly, and you should use as often as you can. But there's one, and it's almost better to use the Greek word than essence because it's more comprehensive. Right. It has a really stronger, more full meaning, but one essence, but these three subsistences essentially. So the Venn diagram, if you take that, you'd have to collapse it on itself so that all three circles were on top of each other essentially. Right. And if we're talking about the divine nature and each each circle represents a, a person and their nature, then it actually can't even be three circles, even if they're on top of each other. Exactly. Um, and that's that's where we get with, you know, this mystery of the Trinity is, you know, I am in I'm an usia. And and since I'm a concrete usia that actually exists, I'm a hypostasis. Um, you're an usia that is a hypostasis. Um, now you and I don't share a single nature. We have we have natures that are of the same species or the same genus, right? We're right. in the same category. When we're talking about the Trinity, that's not what we're saying. We're not saying that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are just um, beings of the same category. We're actually saying something that there's a much more fundamental unity in their persons than that. Um, and that's important because if we start to say, um, you know, there are some analogies that were used in the early church where it's like Peter, James, and John. That's an analogy for the Trinity. They all share a common humanity, but they're three distinct persons. The problem with that is that they don't actually share a common humanity. They Heresy. they all yep. Yeah, that's that's tritheism, right? That's three right. gods. It's not it's not Trinity. Um, the other side of the the equation is in the West, particularly. They tended to use um, examples that lean towards too much unity, right? So they talked about. Um, the psychological model of the Trinity where it's like, well, God is like one mind and, you know, your mind has will, intellect and, um, and emotion or, or, you know, whatever the different, the different components of your mind are yet. It's still one mind. Well, the problem with that is that, um, now we're collapsing the persons in on themselves. So they're just sort of features or aspects of a single reality. That's modalism or Unitarianism, right? More heresy. So, um, before we, before we go forward too much further, 
Um, I want to just read the Nicene Creed. So without getting into too much history, um, the the Nicene Creed was formulated um, first in 325, and then it was amended and updated um, at, in 381 at the Council of Constantinople. So when we talk about the Nicene Creed, we're actually talking about the creed that was kind of signed off on it at the uh, first Council of Constantinople. And the reason this creed is so important is because it represents the um, kind of the earliest complete ecumenical creed that was signed off on and endorsed and used by the entire church. And it's been used by the entire church for 1,700 years with basically uh, basically no modification. Now, that's a really big deal, that, that there hasn't been changes, there hasn't been too much controversy once things settled in. That we've been able to confess this creed together um, is is really significant. So I just want to read it, and we're not going to spend a lot of time diving into the specifics of each um each clause or anything like that. But um, this, I'm getting this off Wikipedia. It looks like it was a uh, translation from Sh- uh, Philip Schaff's work. Um, and it says, We believe in one God, the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father, before all worlds, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary and was made man. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate and suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. From thence he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead. His kingdom shall have no end. And in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, who with the Father and Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets, in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, we acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and in the life of the world to come. Amen. Now, you'll also just note in the section on the Holy Spirit, um, I'm reading what was the original creed. In the West, um, in probably the seven or eight hundreds, they added the what's called the filioque clause. So that we affirm in the West generally that um, the, the Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son. And that brings us, um, I think, to kind of our next uh, our next thing that we have to talk about is now that we've sort of identified how the persons are unified and how, how they're identical in terms of their essential nature, every attribute that we talked about with, uh, with the Father when we talked about theology proper, every attribute that the Father is, the Son is also, and the Spirit is also. And it's not just that they have the same attributes. Um, the Athanasian Creed says it really beautifully, where it has this sequence in the middle where it says, not it says the Father is uh, omnipotent, the Spirit is, Son is omnipotent, the Spirit is omnipotent, yet there is only one omnipotence. Um, and what it's saying is that the the Father's omnipotence is the same power that the Son possesses. It's not that the Father and the Son just both have the same level of power. It's that the power of the Father is the power of the Spirit and the power of the Son. And so we, we've kind of established this unity and this um, the oneness. But now people will often look at that and say, well, so how do we know that the Son is the Son? Could the could the Son, could the Spirit have been incarnate and been the Son instead? You know, are the persons interchangeable? And the answer is no. Um, and the reason for that is this section here where we get in the Creed where it talks about the Son being the only begotten and then the Spirit proceeding from the Father. And I'm just going to read um, uh, just uh, one 
article out of the Westminster Confession, chapter 2, article 3, in the unity of the Godhead, and they use the word Godhead um, kind of synonymous with divine nature. So in the unity of the divine nature, there's three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. So there's that unity again. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and the Holy Ghost is proceeding from the Father and the Son. And so what we're talking about here is um, the way that we distinguish and can tell the, the persons apart and the way that they are distinguished and different from each other is in how they relate to each other. So there's nothing different about their essential nature. They are a single nature. They share that single nature. They're ex- absolutely identical in every way in terms of what they are. The way that they distinguish themselves from each other is how they relate to each other. So the the second person of the Trinity relates to the first person of the Trinity as a son. Um, and now we have to be careful because when we think about that in um, our context, we look at our what it means to be a son in our context. That implies a beginning. It implies a dependence. It implies... Um, you know, that one person is of a greater rank or a greater authority than the other. And none of those things are true in um, in the top when we're talking about the father. The father, you know, we, we recognize a certain order of persons in the Trinity, but we don't recognize a, a level of authority within the Trinity in, in eternity past. So the, the son and the father and the spirit don't outrank each other. It's not like the father is really in charge and the son submits to him eternally and the spirit submits to both of them eternally. Um, There's an ordering of persons, but not a submission. And there's a whole controversy brewing right now about whether or not that's the case. And um, there's lots of stuff that's been written. But the simple answer is that um, the idea that the father is sort of like the head of the Trinity in terms of like authority and that the son and the spirit are submissive or subordinate to um, the father, that is a pretty much a brand new theology that was never really even conceived of in the church. And when it was, it was dismissed as heresy, right? It was called subordinationism or Arianism or originism. There are all these different names for it. But people like Wayne Grudem and Bruce Ware and Owen Strachan um, and a whole host of reformed evangelical guys um, have postulated this primarily to support their views on gender roles in the church. Um, and just hands down, they are not reflecting the historic Christian tradition. So we will probably do an episode in the future um, about complementarianism and egalitarianism. And we'll talk about the EFS controversy a little bit at that point. We might even do a whole episode just on the EFS controversy. But um, historic Nicene Orthodox Christianity does not affirm a hierarchy of rank or of authority in the Trinity um, what's called ad intra or um, in eternity past or in the essence of what God is. There's no ranking. There is an ordering, like we said, but not a ranking. And we go back to the Westminster and the Nicene Creed primarily because this is a complicated subject and the language matters and it has have actual implications. I think some people have this tendency to think, well, it's, it's just words and we're doing our best to describe it. But the bottom line is it's so prone to error because it's both at the same time. It can be straightforward in just saying that there's one essence and three subsistences. But then there's this problem where we get into this tension between distinguishing and separating. We want to distinguish the roles, but we'd be careful not to separate them. Or we'd go the other route and we just collapse everything into one. Right. So the language is important. And those two documents in particular are really good at helping to shape, provide like a construct 
where you know you're going to have like a nice little boundary in which to play. And kind of if you want deeper investigation, those are good resources um, to start. So let me ask this, Tony, in terms of what we've been talking about and what you presented, um, where does the rubber start to meet the road for us? I mean, where does this start to impact how we actually obey and worship God? Yeah, and that's that's a great question. And we talked about, um, you know, last week we or last time we did a systematic uh, episode, we talked about how we were talking about the Father. You know, we didn't start off with discussing sort of this abstract nature. And the reason for that is that we don't worship an abstract, unpersonal or, or uh, impersonal nature, right? We worship the Father through his son, through the mediation of his son, and by the power of his Holy Spirit. And so the first thing that we, when we really grasp the Trinity, as much as our finite, limited minds can, is it drives us to relationships with persons, rather than sort of this abstract, kind of out there, impersonal, floating up above us God. Um, which is, I know for, for myself, speaking for myself, that was kind of the way I understood God, um, you know, when I was a baby Christian, there was the father and I knew like there's the father, the son and the spirit. And I knew that like the father was up there somewhere, but I didn't really feel like I related to the father, but Jesus, Jesus was my homeboy, right? Uh, Jesus was the one I prayed to. Jesus was the one that I asked into my heart. And then there was like this Holy spirit thing. And I didn't really understand like, well, I don't really get if, if Jesus lives in my heart, then what's, what's this Holy spirit. I don't really understand that. Um, and so the the father ends up being this kind of distant, um, maybe personal, but distant kind of deistic thought. And when we really grasp the Trinity, what we recognize is that the father loved the world so much that he gave his only son, right? That's John 3.16. We want to put some scriptural verses to this, is that when we look at that passage in context, it's not um, God in abstract. It's not some impersonal divine thing out there. It's the father loved the world that so much that he gave his only begotten son so that no one would perish but would have eternal life. Um, and then when we, you know, when we get progress further in, in the New Testament, um, you know, with the Gospels, we kind of, the, the spotlight zooms in on the father and then how the father is working in, in the world through the agency of his son. And then when Christ returns and he sends the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, in Acts, we start to see how the Holy Spirit moves. And the Holy Spirit is the personal presence of the Lord in our lives. Now, that's not to say that the Holy Spirit isn't a person in and of himself. But the right. presence of the Holy Spirit is the way that Christ, um, at least for now, uh, fulfills his promise that he would be with us till the end of the earth. Because Jesus is not sitting in the room with me according to his humanity. Right, he has exactly. chosen to um, chosen to be personally present primarily as a localized human person. Uh, that's his his personal presence with us is the same way that he was personally present with his apostles, or in a similar way, I should say. And his presence was the presence of the Father. The same way or a similar way, the Spirit's presence in our life is the presence of both the Father and the Son in our lives now. So the Trinity is really how we relate to um, to God, how we relate to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We can only ever be Trinitarian, right? We only ever relate to God because of the Holy Spirit. And we can only ever have the Spirit in our life because Christ purchased our righteousness in order to make us a, a viable place for the Holy Spirit to dwell. Does that kind of get at what you're looking for there? Yeah, I think that's right on. And it's a wonderful reality that 
we have truth represented in a person and not just an idea, not just right. like some kind of concept to which you can grant intellectual assent. But this idea that, because there's a lot of confusion on this, even when I speak to people sometimes, or we just having casual conversations about the Trinity or to whom do we pray or where is Jesus? You know, we have a lot of like just colloquial kind of common, not always thoughtful language in how we describe Jesus being present with us. And, right. and he's not. And we actually much prefer it that way because right. he is forever going to be identified with humanity, which means that he like eyeballs, blood vessels, hands, feet, like he's in a physical place, right. in, in a space and in, in some kind of reality, reality based uh, place. And that means then that he's given us this, the spirit, like you said, essentially to indwell us with his presence, but he's not like here with us. Like he's not in the room. Right. And, and we should love that because he's forever chosen to identify himself with humanity. Yeah. So like, and, go, go ahead. ahead. <laughs> um, we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit more when we get to Christology in a couple weeks. Um, what we're not saying is that the sun is no longer omnipresent or that the sun, right. you know, we're not saying that. Um, there's a doctrine in Reformed theology called the extra Calvinisticum. And what that is, roughly speaking, is that the sun is personally present in two ways. He's personally present in all times, all places, um, omnipresently, whatever that means. Um, he's personally present that way, but so is the father. And we don't directly exactly. experience or um, perceive that um, ever. I mean, I've never in any time that I've ever thought been able to personally perceive the presence of the father. Uh, that's largely because the father is incorporeal. We can't sense him. None of our faculties are equipped to do that. And Christ is present in this room with me in that way, in a way that my faculties are not equipped to perceive. He's also personally present in a local way, in uh, in body, in in heaven. Um, so he's not present with us in a way that we can perceive. Now we'll talk about how those things matter when we get to next week. The Holy Spirit, however, indwells us in a way that our faculty still can't perceive, but in a way that changes us. So we may not feel it or sense it or know it. Um, you know, we don't, we might get the Holy Spirit goosebumps once in a while, but that's probably more a matter of adrenaline and emotion than it is um, any sort of real sense of the divine. But the Holy Spirit is present in a way that changes us, that we understand and know. Um, the The Father and the Son is not present in the same way. They're present in the, in the Holy Spirit, but not in that same personal way. And, and we're getting into all sorts of mystery here. Right. And that, that's what's tough is, is trying to make sure that we can distinguish but not separate and then again, not commingle too much such that we're not appreciating like, the economy of the Trinity, the different roles uh, that they have in terms of the plan of salvation, the working out of salvation. That's a, that's a whole nother conversation. But one of the things that often comes up, and I think you and I have talked about this before, but so how does that impact like to whom do we pray? Because that's sure. like a, a big question a lot of times. We have the Trinity and sometimes we just start praying and we're well-intentioned and we're going all over the place. And, you know, you find that we either we're addressing the different persons or we're not. Sometimes, you know, people are just not sure who right. should I address my prayers to. Yeah. And so I think um, we'll do this kind of in backwards order. So I think that as Christians, and some people will disagree with that, and this is fine. As Christians, we are permitted to address our prayers to any one person of the Trinity. Um, we can pray to the Holy Spirit. We can pray to Jesus. We can pray to the Father. We can also pray, I think, to kind of collectively to the three persons. And we may we may address God 
and what we're doing when we address God kind of in air quotes is we're addressing the three persons collectively. So just like I might stand in front of, um, I might stand in front of a group of people and I might address them as a sing. I might use singular language when addressing a group of people. Um, we also can address God and be addressing the father, son, and Holy spirit as persons, um, in that way. I think that the biblical pattern that we see in the New Testament, and I would actually argue probably in in the Old Testament and especially in the Psalms, is to pray to the Father by the mediation of the Son, which is why we talk about praying in Jesus' name is because he's our mediator. And we do so by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I use that that sort of pattern um, religiously, and I don't mean that in like a pejorative sense, but I use that pattern every single time I pray. And here's why is I'm sure that we've all been in a circumstance where somebody is praying and they start out praying to the father and then they sort of subtly and unknowingly shift to praying, um, to thanking the father for coming and dying on the cross and for, for living in our heart. And then they get to the end of the prayer and they say in your name, amen. Right. And so what we've done is we've confused and conflated the, the roles that each person plays in the economy of salvation. Um, at best, we just confuse the roles un- unwittingly. At worst, we're actually kind of picturing a single God or a single person who's doing different things at different times. And that's modalism. So there's our heresy alert again. Um, so for my own prayer life um, and like when I pray publicly, I'm very intentional to be addressing my prayers to the Father to be closing my prayers saying in the name of Jesus Christ, and I also say, and in the power of your Holy Spirit. And the reason I do that is because it helps me from getting confused. Right. Um, and I pray I pray publicly in church almost every week, and um, I don't want to be a subject of confusion for other people, right? So I'm praying that way, and I'm, 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 not, I'm not a teacher um, in the church when I'm praying, but I'm praying that way, in order to, you know, kind of have it be caught by the other people that are there. And, you know, my last church, there was actually a a guy who um, I noticed, you know, after being with him in Bible study for like six months, he started praying the same way. And it was just really kind of, kind of heartwarming to see like this person's prayers are clearer and less likely to be confusing because he's picked up on this pattern that the, the Bible itself gives us, right? The New Testament, Paul closes a lot of his letters in these Trinitarian prayers. Um, so I think that's the pattern in the New Testament. But we do have examples of, I think, Stephen in Acts when he's, you know, he looks up into heaven and he, he prays to Jesus. So I think that's permissible. Right. Um, I can't think of any explicit instances in in the Bible where someone prays to the Holy Spirit, but I can't imagine that if it's appropriate to pray to the Father and the Son, that it somehow would be inappropriate to pray to the Spirit. But from a pragmatic standpoint, I just think it makes sense for us to be intentional um, to pattern our prayers after the dominant, you know, the dominant pattern in the Bible, and then also in a way that that shapes our Trinitarian theology as we pray as well. Absolutely. It's just a really great habit to get into because it keeps us mindful and cognizant of those things. Mm-hmm. And like I said, so I don't think it's we it's wrong to, to pray to Jesus, but to do so with like a very focused mind right. when you're doing that. So that, again, you're appreciating the distinction of the persons and again, their role at various in affecting salvation and in understanding to whom you bring the request before. So I'm with you. That's a really good habit, I think, just to practice, even if it's just in your personal prayer life, because I found as I've done that, it also gives you a greater appreciation 
for each of the three and what you're doing and how you're relating in different ways. Yeah. And that's just good practical theology, I think. It's it's teaching and it's transformative and uh, it's beautiful appreciation of the persons. Yeah, and one one other thought about that before we move on to a slightly different part of this is if you when you're reading theology, whether it's um, John Calvin or a modern theologian, um, especially in the Reformed tradition is where I've experienced this. If you look carefully, you'll see that most of the time when a person uses the word God, they're talking about the Father. And the way right. that you usually see this is with the pronouns that are associated in other places. So I don't remember, I was reading Calvin and I don't remember exactly where it was, somewhere in book four. And it was talking, you know, he's talking about God does this, God does that, God does this. And then you, you'll see, he says, and he sent his son or he ministers to us by his spirit. So when you look at that, you can backtrack that. And you have to be careful because people don't always use language consistently. So we have to be careful of trying to like trace these thoughts too far because sometimes they just, you're going to read it wrong because they're just not being consistent. But when you look at it, that means we're talking about the Father. And that plays out in the New Testament too. If you do a survey of the word theos in Greek, which is the word for God, and you do a survey in the New Testament, almost universally, when the word is not clearly modified by something else, um, you will see God being used as the father almost universally. And so for me too, I just think, um, you know, creeds are great. I love creeds. I love confessions. They serve a vital, important role, um, in the life of the church and in, in protecting us from ourselves. But our language should reflect as close as possible, the language of the new Testament and the way that the new Testament talks. Um, and I say the new Testament because the new Testament is the fullest, um, fullest revelation that we have. That's not to say that the Old Testament is somehow faulty, but it's a the Old Testament is a book of shadows and types. It's not a partial revelation, but it's an, in some ways it's an obscure revelation. Now, when we look at the New Testament, that casts some light back on. So, um, you know, I mentioned the prayers in the Psalms. Um, it's not 100% of the time, but Jesus prayed those Psalms. So if Jesus is praying those Psalms, then we have to have a theology of what those Psalms mean that allows Jesus to pray them without, in most cases, praying to himself, right? So there's some instances where the Bible explicitly tells us that the a given Psalm is about the Son, right? Psalm 110, I think is the most quoted Psalm in the New Testament. And it clearly tells us that, um, that there's the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, and the Lord says to my Lord, so Jesus could pray that psalm, but we clearly have the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, is the Father, right? Because the Father says to the Son, I will make you a priest. You know, today I have begotten you. I will make you a priest in the order of Melchizedek. So we have to, when we look at the psalms, we have to be really intentional to try to spot that. And generally, my, my practice is to assume, unless I have a reason otherwise, that the word God or the word Yahweh or the word Lord, um, to assume that that word refers to the Father, unless I have a reason to think otherwise. There are people that would disagree and say that's a faulty hermeneutic. But in my experience, that's yielded really productive, fruitful interpretations that play out. So Genesis 1, for example, in the beginning, God, right? Is that the Trinity? Is that some one of the specific persons? Well, what does God do? He speaks. Well, we go to John 1. In the beginning was the Word, the spoken Word. The Word was, uh, the word was with God. The Word was God. All things were created through Him. So we've now got God creating by means of His spoken Word, and then what happens next? The spirit hovers over the water. So if we understand God in Genesis 1, the word God, Elohim, 
to be the father, we have a really clear, you know, um, a really clear parallel to John 1.1. 1, 1. And then we get to uh, Genesis 1.26, and God says, let us make man in our own image. Well, this is a passage that has confused people to no end. Who is God talking to? Well, God is the father here. He's speaking to the Son and the Spirit. We don't have to think about some weird court, you know, some weird council of angels or a royal we or any of the ways that people try to explain that. It's right on the surface of the text. The Father says to the Son and the Spirit, let us make man in our image. Um, the same thing happens, I think, in Genesis 3 when he says, you know, the, the, the man has become like one of us. Well, who is, who is he talking to? He's become like one of us, like the other persons of the Trinity. So I think that's a good general practice when we're reading Scripture is, is to follow the pattern of the New Testament and apply that to the Old Testament. The pattern of the New Testament is the word God, the word Lord generally refers to the Father, although sometimes it refers to the Son and the Spirit too. Um, and then we look back and see that and apply that to the Old Testament. Yeah, I think that part of the, the trouble we all find ourselves in is that we first want to so badly understand more about God, more about his person. We desire to know him and to love him better. And then we desire to communicate that knowledge as best that we can. So even the words, all the words we've been using are in a sense metaphors in them themselves. Right. So there's no really great comparison. There's no really great metaphor. And yet we're still stuck with using language that is all based on like a single essence, single substance, a subsistence like person, right. which means that we totally lack any kind of faculties or available tools to really provide a really good explanation. So it is really helpful to kind of process this and think through this. It's also really devotional, I think, in terms of kind of wrapping up how we understand this with how that impacts a lot of the world in which we live and how we understand the world. So for instance, the fact that, as you said, with God essentially speaking to himself or speaking to the to Jesus and the Spirit, uh, the Son uh, from Genesis 1, this idea that how completely coherent and cogent the entire scriptures are because of the Trinity. So we have love pre-existing because there is in the Trinity unity and diversity and community all in the Trinity. Right. Or the fact that for most of mankind's history, there's always been this longing to find the unity in the diversity, which is, you know, what universe and university essentially were all mean in their essence. So it's wonderful that when we start to look at this, though it might seem like unnecessary, com unnecessarily complicated, what we really find is the mystery propels us forward to appreciate more how God in his very being and the ways that we can at least understand it in a small way uh, is so consistent with the world in which we live that we would expect God to be like this because we see that in the world that he has created right. and we find him to be wholly consistent, even if we can't understand the wonderful nuances of what it means to have that kind of, to be that kind of being. Does that make sense? It does. And I just want to touch on one more kind of technical aspect before we move on to some questions and stuff that we had in a couple different groups is there's also, um, you know, there's two ways that we think about the Trinity, right? We think about the Trinity ad extra um, or sorry, add intra or kind of to the inside. And that is God, um, the, the persons of the Trinity and the, the, the divine nature as they are in themselves in eternity past oriented towards each other or internally. Um, we don't know much about that, right? We don't know a lot because we can't peer into the Trinity. Um, then we talk about the Trinity add extra or kind of oriented outward. And, and everything that the Trinity does 
in the act of creating and everything towards creation is at extra. Now, there's a debate that's raged through the church throughout history of how much does the ad extra trinity really tell us about the ad intra trinity. And that's not to say they're different trinities, but how do the ad extra activities of this, the trinity, how do that, what does that tell us about the ad intra? And um, we won't get into it, but um, the, the basic answer that I would give is a little bit. It tells us something. Because God, God is not going to act in ways that are inconsistent with his nature. So the Father, Son, and Spirit, as they act toward creation, act consistently with who and what they are. But that being said, um, there are things that the Father, Son, and Spirit have to do in creation that do not reflect realities in themselves. So the, the relationships of authority and submission that we talked about earlier, that's one of those things, is that... As they act toward creation, there's a clear order of submission, right? The father um, commissions the son to do a particular task. The son obeys the father and submits himself to that command. And the spirit, in many ways, submits himself to both the father and the son's command. That's clear from scripture that that's what happens in external acts. That doesn't mean that that exists in the internal uh, the right. internal nature of the Trinity. And as we're talking about the external acts, it's important for us to remember there's a Latin phrase. I'm not going to try it but because um, I'll butcher it and I don't remember it off the top of my head. But it's basically the external operations of the Trinity cannot be divided. And what that means is that everything that God does towards, um, towards creation or externally, he does in perfect unity with his son and with his spirit. And it's always the same pattern as the father acts, the son um, accomplishes what the father desires, and the spirit brings that effect into um, application. So the father decrees who the son will come to save, the son comes and obtains their redemption, and the spirit then applies that obtained redemption to his people, right? The father desires to create and determines what will be created. The son brings about that creation. We see that in the, the analogy of speech in Genesis. Um, and then we see the spirit hovering over the water and kind of bringing that effect into to being. So it's really important that we don't make any one person of the Trinity kind of a rogue actor, right? The son doesn't act on his own accord, right? He says it all over the gospel of John. He doesn't come to do his own will, but comes to do the will of the father. He doesn't act on his own, but he only does what the father tells him to do. Um, that's important because if we if we separate those acts of the Trinity too much, if we we see them as separable acts, then we end up with three completely separate actors, and that's the road to tritheism. Heresy sound effect. Heresy alert. Right. That's why for me, it's I've always learned that it's you're much stronger in firmer ground if you focus on distinguishing rather than separating. As right. soon as you start to make draw lines of demarcation that are separate, then you're liable to run right into all kinds of trouble. Right. And that's what we mean when we say God does this. God does whatever it is, whatever verb it is. When we say God does this, we don't mean there's some sort of fourth actor in the Trinity. There's not some sort of fourth agency or some unified agency. What we have is three agents, three agencies that are acting in a radically unified way that's more unified than anything we can ever imagine. And uh, Mike Horton, I think, puts it really well. I don't have the page number in front of me. But he says they don't do the same thing, but they don't act separately. They act together but differently. So the Father does something, and the Son does something, and the Spirit does something, and it's not the same thing, 
but they're acting in a way that is radically unified towards creation. Now, when we talk about the ad interactivities, we don't know a lot about it, but obviously the father loves the son. Well, the son, the son, I guess we could say the son loves the son, but it's not the same activity, right? It's not the exact same thing. So the persons act upon each other or towards each other in a way, uh, in a sense, you know, ad intra, and we don't need to get into that too much. Uh, but it's really the external acts. We have to remember that the Father, Son, and Spirit always act in a united way. And that, again, is really important when we're talking about the, the eternal functional submission of the Son, uh, that EFS controversy. It, it really destroys this inseparable operations um, in a way that just really just collapses into tritheism and then they, they throw a little bit of arianism in there and the sons doesn't isn't as worthy of glory as the, the father is and it's a big mess um, but if we can keep our head around that um, that the father son and spirit act in a radically unified way towards creation such that they are acting as persons but as persons who are radically unified then we go a long way into not sort of stumbling into some of those heretical ways of thinking right that's well said so let's let's um, do a couple questions. So before we do the questions, if I don't get to your question, um, you're probably in the majority because there was like a thousand questions and um, we have about 10 minutes left before we have to wrap. So um, we will try in the future to cor- you know, compilate, compilate, to collate all of these questions and try to do like a question and answer session. Um, but I wanted to try to hit a couple of these. So... Um, we had um, Chuck wanted to know about the invisible or indivisible operations, which we just talked about. Uh, let's see. Do you got a good question in there that you think would be good to talk about? Uh, your wife asked what Christmas candy is most like the Trinity. Uh, there is no analogy that I'm comfortable using. <laughs> all analogies you lead the test. Yes, all analogies lead to heresy. Uh, in one form or another. So that doesn't mean we can't we can't rightfully use analogies in helping us understand the Trinity, but we need to understand that what we're doing is telling us what the Trinity is not like. So exactly. we can talk about the egg the egg analogy or St. Patrick's clover or the water steam vapor or whatever it is. But what we need to do is use those to set up boundaries, to to give us some buffers. Um but don't use analogies. Don't try to don't try to explain to kids um, with some of these analogies what um, what the Trinity is like, because you're just going to teach them to be heretics. Is the candy cane like one of those analogies? Because I feel like that's coming up, and I, I'm not familiar with that. Um, I feel like I've heard that before. Let's see what like Google the, says. What the two different the mint and peppermint, or I don't know, like the two types of candy intertwined. What's the third component? The cane? I don't know. But when I looked up Candy Cane Trinity, I got a lot of stuff about, I think, some sort of school. The Holy Trinity Candy Cane Classic Basketball Tournament. <laughs> so there must be a school that did a basketball fundraiser that was like a Christmas basketball tournament. I, I'd like to think it's just some elaborate analogy using basketball. And basketball candy and candy canes, yeah. Um, so I did have one person who asked me um, – there's sort of an analogy that I've used in the past uh, to try to help explain this to kids. And um, I, I'm, I'm hesitant, but kids are, are sort of a situation where you have to kind of give them partial information about complicated subjects, depending on their age. And so the easiest way that I've, I've come across to explain to kids is you start by explaining, you know, mommy and daddy 
are we're both humans, right? So you can look at mommy and know she's a human and you can look at me and know that I'm a human because there's some things about us that all people share, right? So you use that that commonality between persons to explain what a nature is. And then you explain how, um, you know, mommy can go in the other room and she's separate from me or someone can take mommy away and and keep her away from me. We can be separated and that's not good. But the persons of the Trinity are not like that. They, they are connected in a way that you can never separate them. You can never think about the Father without thinking about the Son or without thinking about the Spirit. And right there, um, you have the fundamental elements of the Trinity in place. You have the unity of nature and the inseparability of nature. And you also have the diversity of persons. And, you know, with kids, you shouldn't feel like you have to have them quoting the Westminster Confession of Faith, you know, at like four years old. It's okay for them not to really understand the Trinity. Um, And you know what? To be frank, like a 25-year-old or a 45-year-old, it's okay for them. You know, we talked about how people have this vague sense of oneness and threeness. And to be honest, for most people, that is just fine. Um, You know, it's it's important to set up boundaries and to be clear about what the Trinity is not. But within those boundaries, there's a lot of flexibility and a lot of ways that we can articulate the Trinity um, that aren't all right. Um, But they're not all heresy either. And in something that is an infinite mystery where God is so radically different from what we are, I think it's okay to sort of rest in some of that mystery. I agree. That's well said. It's great for us to have. We should always be reforming in such a way that we have a healthy knowledge and understanding of the Trinity. Yeah. But it's also comforting to know that God has given us enough in his word to uh, learn, study, and infer what is the most important, making the plain things the main things, right. and that we can rest in that. Right. So um, one last question, um, well, two last questions. One person in a Facebook group I'm in uh, asked, is your podcast on iTunes? Uh, the answer is yes, our <laughs> podcast is on iTunes, and you should rate and review us uh, and share us Please. with friends. Um, you can just search the Reformed Brotherhood uh, on the iTunes search box. And uh, if you find it, rate and review us. That'd be great. But a question about the Trinity um, was, is a believing understanding the doctrine of the Trinity essential to being a believer? Can't I just believe in God and his love for me? And um, the answer is yes and no. So um, you have to believe that God is a Trinity. And there's two reasons for that. The first is that that's what the Bible tells us, right? The Bible reveals um, you can't consistently interpret the Bible without something like the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, you know, you have you have God is one in the Shema, and then you have um, the Word is God and the Word was with God. Right there, you have to have something like the doctrine of the Trinity in order to understand that. So that's the first reason why it's it's vital for a believer is if you want to take the Bible seriously and, and believe that it doesn't contain contradictions, you have to have something like the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, and then the second part of it is, can't I just believe in God and his love for me? Um, the answer in a sense is sure. But what is that love? What does that love do? What does that love look like? Well, that love is that God and his eternal son and his eternal spirit loved, loved sinners so much that his son became one of us and that his son died and then sent his spirit. So you can just believe in God's love for us. But again, if you're taking the Bible seriously, that that love acts in a specific way. And you have to have the doctrine of the Trinity in order to understand and really embrace how that love operates. Exactly. Because as you said earlier, love always leads to giving. 
Right. So we understand in John 3, 16 that God so loved the world that he gave. That is kind of the the manifest demonstration of love. And if you're saying God is love and just you're making it refer in the sense that God, I know God is love because he loves me. Well, right. then we're saying that that love does not predate you or right. humanity for that matter. Right. So we've confused things already. So this is why it is really important. You're right to get some particulars down so that we have a better appreciation for the Godhead in its person. Right. And I think it's really important too, is if you're listening to this and you're a person who's sitting here going, I don't understand the Trinity at all. um, You're like the vast majority of people in the church. And um, there's a big difference between someone who sits back and recognizes God is really hard to understand and I'm going to get things wrong, but I want to be faithful to the Bible. And I, I trust that the church has faithfully interpreted the Bible and I understand that um, God somehow is one and somehow is three and that there's three persons. That's that's very different from somebody who is willfully rejecting those facts. So I, I like to say that you can't be a heretic on accident. And what I mean by that is not that you can't hold heretical views unwittingly, but the, the word heretic or heresy in the scriptures, actually the root word is choice. And a heretic is somebody who knows what the church teaches and knows what the historical understanding of the Bible is and willfully rejects that. And you can't do that on accident. So if you're kind of a person that thinks like, oh man, I don't know if I understand the Trinity well enough to be saved. Um, that's that's not how it works. Right, um, exactly. If, if you're willing to say that, um, you know, I don't understand how it works, but I trust what scripture says. And I believe that the church has has a faithful teaching, you know, represented in the Nicene Creed and other kind of ecclesiastical documents, um, because that's what the Bible teaches, then you don't have to worry if you if you get elements wrong here and there. You're, you're not going to, you know, be condemned because you, you put an eye in the wrong spot in some sort of um, ecumenical creed or something like that. Sometimes we use heresy, obviously, tongue in cheek, and that's not to be an excuse for good accountability for good theology. But you're exactly right. Like, I want anybody to feel, including myself, like this sense that though I'm well-intentioned and I'm trying as best I can to understand and express that knowledge and to be encouraged by it and to let it be saturated with scripture, that for some reason, because I've, I've used the wrong analogy at some point uh, in some conversation that I've somehow crossed like this line of heresy of which there's from which there's no return. Right. Right. Absolutely. So I think that probably just about does it again. We, you know, we could have gone for another hour easy. We could have, we could have spent a whole, you know, for sure. We could have done a thousand episodes on the Trinity and just been barely scratching the surface. So Jesse, do you have any uh, kind of closing thoughts or, or maybe something practical that we can, can take out uh, as we go back to our lives to, to really put some rubber on this? So I thought that this podcast might need like a heresy horn that we could just sound, you know, when, when heresy occurs. So, of course, I went to the only place I thought I could buy one, which was Amazon. And I was really underwhelmed oh. with the search results, just for the record. They don't make a heresy horn? No, apparently not. It's some um, interesting French horns did come up. Um, I don't know if those have traditionally been used to call it heresy, but, you know, hmm. I'm down with that. Interesting. You know what we could do? We should make a game that's like that taboo game, but it's like heresy. We could call it like heresy. <laughs> and basically like you get a doctrine on a card and you have to explain the doctrine and then someone listens and buzzes you when you say something heretical. That's fantastic. That, I, that's a party game. Right I feel there. like that would be more fun than the Joel Olstein game. 
that it it would have better gameplay already the rules make more sense right like i would say if you're looking for an interesting time and particularly maybe in reforming some of your theology and having an excuse to have some really interesting conversations you should definitely go to amazon look up the uh joel steen your best life now game just the reviews by themselves are entertaining they're worth it yes all right well i think that probably does it so as you go out this week um just remember that we serve a great god and that the father demonstrated his love for us by giving his son and his son died for us and he sent his spirit for us and there's really nothing better that we can think of than that so just rest in that truth and uh, we'll see you next week amen Oh, what if I'm far from home?